Hello, and welcome to Inventors Helping Inventors. I'm your host, Alan Beckley, inventor of The Wonder Wallet. If you're an inventor searching for proven ways to make money with your invention, if you dream to see your product selling in stores everywhere, you've come to the right place. There's no better place to get help than from experts, inventors who've already achieved success. Every week, I interview successful inventors, asking them the questions you want to know. Tune in to learn from the experts so you can get your invention out of the tank and into the bank. My mother broke her glasses in Nicaragua when she was doing some help. She was working over there helping uh, the poor people, uh, building latrines and stuff. And one day she broke her glasses and that started another invention that I actually have patents on. And she, what she did was she took her earring out of her ear and she put it in where the screw goes to hold the glasses together. And so she had this dangling earring hanging from her glasses. How would you like to have instant access to valuable resources, including a Chinese sourcing expert in Shenzhen who speaks excellent English and who won't steal your IP? How about a proven patent agent who's affordable and easy to work with? And a CAD CAM designer and prototype expert with over 30 years experience. Well, now you can get access to all of these in one place, and that's in the Inventors Helping Inventors membership group, I-H-I-M-G for short. As Ron Popeil famously said, but wait, there's more. In the I-H-I-M-G, we have two monthly members-only meetings where you'll Meet and learn from uber-successful inventors. Meet and collaborate with over 30 other inventors just like you. But that's not all. You get instant access to our video vault of over 46 training videos where you'll learn how Marcy McKenna crafts successful inventions even when she finds similar products. And how Lisa Lloyd does in-depth product research before she launches any new product, and how Dan Klitzner is able to launch multiple successful toy inventions, including the new Bop It button. So how do you get your hands on all of this? Again, you go to the Inventors Helping Inventors membership group, and it costs just $35 a month. That's www.allenbeckley.com slash IHI35. Again, that's www.allenbeckley.com slash IHI35 to sign up now. Now, you may be wondering, is there a way that I can just make a single investment for the entire year instead of monthly debits? And if I did that, would I save some additional money? The answer to both questions is yes. There is an option to register as an annual member with just a single payment of $350. That link is www.allenbeckley.com slash IHI350. That's to make a single payment for the entire year. And there's an additional bonus that annual members get. And that is you get 
two hours of one-on-one coaching with me for free. That's a $300 value you get for free if you choose to register as an annual member at $350 for the entire year. Again, that link is www.allenbeckley.com slash IHI350. I want to stress that both payment options give you access to everything. What if you choose to decide to cancel your membership? That's no problem. At any time, you can reach out to me and I will cancel your membership. And if you're an annual member, then I'll give you a proration on the remaining balance of your annual fee. Again, the two options available to do as a monthly member for just $35 a month is www.allenbeckley.com slash IHI35. And for an annual membership, single payment of just $350, go to www.allenbeckley.com slash IHI350. Look forward to seeing you in our monthly membership group. So you're done searching for your product and it's not out there. Yay! Maybe you filed for a provisional patent and done some marketing research or surveys. Heck, maybe you've even created a rough prototype, then found that, although it kind of works, it looks like something from the Stone Age. You'd be embarrassed to show it to your friends, much less to a manufacturer for a licensing pitch. What if I could put you in touch with a guy who offers free consultations, takes no money down, no money up front, and will give you a quote on your project before he starts? What if I told you that this same guy can help you design your product and make you a virtual prototype before you ever put a penny into building a physical one? What if I told you he could make you patent drawings, CAD files for manufacturing, and even make marketing videos and build you a website? If this sounds like someone you want to talk to, let me introduce you to my first podcast sponsor, Brian Keast at I Draw Dreams for Inventors. With three and a half years of trade school and 15 years of mechanical experience working as a mechanic for General Motors, you have someone that's seen countless design failures and how they were fixed. Also, he had a 25-year career as a general contractor who designed his own houses and remodels on computer-aided design. In getting plans through countless building departments, he gained a tremendous amount of experience by working directly with structural engineers. The many years of combined experience in these two careers gave him a unique look into stresses and failures in design. He brings this wealth of knowledge and experience to his company, I Draw Dreams, as the CAD guy who will design a product for you that will work. Every inventor I've referred to Brian has come away delighted with the work he has done for them, and I think you will too. Just make sure to tell them that Alan sent you. Welcome to episode number 320. Today is a rebroadcast from one of the favorites that's an oldie, and that is with Nancy Tedeschi. This is episode 16, three years ago, from 
April 8th, 2019. Nancy Tedeschi is the inventor of the Snap-It screw. It solves the annoying problem of you've got your glasses on and one of those little tiny screws fall out and you can't get it back in and so the earpiece is gone. Her Snap-It screws solve that problem elegantly. She's been very successful with it. You're really going to enjoy this interview with her and listen in closely because something unique about Nancy, she has a Chinese patent and she's gone to court in China to enforce it. You'll have to listen into the interview to find out what happened with that. Nancy Tedeschi is an entrepreneur and award-winning inventor of the Snap-It Screw. Snap-It Screw is sold in major retail stores throughout the United States, including Walmart, and Office Depot. To date, Tedeschi's company, iEgo LLC, has sold over 5 million screws and 400,000 eyeglass repair kits, which include the screw, to the consumer retail market. After bringing Snap-It Screw to the retail market, Tedeschi has recently licensed her product in the United States to one of the largest optical distributors in the world and is currently duplicating her licensing efforts in multiple countries where she holds more than 20 patents or patent pendings. Tedeschi is passionate about helping other inventors and entrepreneurs to navigate the often difficult path to the marketplace and the option of licensing agreements. She travels the country speaking to university students and invention associations and actively helps business-minded individuals on the road to entrepreneurship. Tedeschi has received numerous awards for her Snap-It Screw invention and as an entrepreneur, including her first place Inventors Club of Kansas City fifth annual National Invention Contest and People's Choice Award in 2010, Optical Laboratory Association Award of Excellence 2011, Australian Optical Laboratory Association Award of Excellence 2011, National Hardware Retailers Choice Award for the Best Product 2011, GWATA Entrepreneur of the Year Award, and one of three winners of the Walmart Get on the Shelf Contest. Now let's get right to our interview with Nancy Tedeschi. Well, Nancy Tedeschi, it's a pleasure to have you on the show with us today. I'd like to start out with kind of a different sort of question. Can you tell us something interesting about yourself that most people probably don't know? Yes, my my uh, I'm 62 years old, and I found my passion this year in life. And most people don't know that because they think that I've already found it with the Snap at School. But I truly had found something I fell in love with, and I started a new business. And not a lot of people know that. Oh, and I take it you're still keeping it a bit under covers or secret for right now. Then, no, it's not a secret at all. So you you got us curious now. So what is what is the new business and your new passion? That- Okay, so uh, about three years ago, I started playing pickleball. I don't know if anybody knows what pickleball is, but it's the fastest growing sport in the world. When currently in the United States, we have about 4 million players, and it's projected by the end of next year to have 10 million players. And I started the first ever designer pickleball clothing line, where I have a business partner who is an artist, and she actually draws pickleball scenes. And we take the paintings and we turn them into digital print and then make the fabric from the digital print. And we started producing in Guatemala and we're teaching the kids over there how to play pickleball. 
Well, that's phenomenal. And and I, I am actually aware of pickleball and seeing quite a few people playing it. It does look like a lot of fun and it makes sense to design a closing line for it. So that sounds like a, a great idea. So thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah. One day I was playing and I looked around and we all looked like tennis players. And I said, yeah, we can't do that. So that's how I came up with the idea. Well, that's great. So really my next question is, what is it that you did before you became an inventor? Well, I pretty much always worked for myself. I'm a diverse entrepreneurial spirit, I would say. Um, my last job right before the uh, Snap It Screw was I owned a title insurance company up in upstate New York where I was up living there raising my son. And not only was I doing the title insurance industry, I was also buying uh, real estate at uh, auctions and flipping the properties. I probably flipped maybe four or 500 houses in my life. I know just a very little bit about flipping houses. That's doing something. Four or 500 is a lot, a lot of uh, success in that, in that realm for sure. Yeah, it was, uh, it, I still do them once in a while. And my son is uh, 30 years old now and he's still up in the Saratoga, New York area. And every now and again, he'll call me and say, hey, I found a house. You want to do it with me and I'll do it with him. But uh, like I told you earlier, my passion is pickleball. And that's, I mean, I feel like, you know, they always say that if you find what you love, you never feel like you're going to work. And at this age, I finally found it and I never feel like I'm working. Well, that's such a great, great thing. And I think it's something that's true of most successful entrepreneurs anyways, or we wouldn't take the risks and do all the things that it takes to become successful as an entrepreneur. Yeah, true. Very true. So then I guess what led you to become an inventor, would you say? Well, I never started out to be an inventor. It was never in my realm of thoughts that I would ever become an inventor, but my mother broke her glasses in Nicaragua when she was doing some help. She was working over there helping uh, the poor people, uh, building latrines and stuff. And one day she broke her glasses. And that started another invention that I actually have patents on. And she, what she did was she took her earring out of her ear and she put it in where the screw goes to hold the glasses together. And so she had this dangling earring hanging from her glasses. And everywhere she went, people would say, where did you get that charm? That is so cool. And she, my mom is like a, she's driven 2 million miles in the last uh, 20 years and probably thrown another, thrown another 3 million. And she's been everywhere. People, I mean, in Tokyo and New York City, people were just walking up to her and asking her where she got it. So she came to me after about a year uh, wearing it. And she said, because she knew I was a business person, she said, we need to do something with this. People want this. So that is where my journey started on becoming an inventor. And that's really how Snap It Screw became in my head. That's how I started Snap It Screw. So really quite an interesting story. Your mom's quite the world traveler for one, and then doing some, some, helping the poor in Nicaragua, which is a great cause to be doing. Interesting story. And then also how a problem, in this case, the uh, glasses breaking, led to a solution. And the initial solution was kind of uh, had some other different aspects to it. It's very funny that you say that because 
when I started with the charms, you know, it was, you know, I, I thought I had this great invention and which actually turned out to be pretty good. But at the initial stages of it, I was, I had designed this little tiny washer that went on the screw. It was like a double washer. It had the hole for the screw and then it had a slot for the charms. And I would take this glasses apart and I would take that tiny little screw and put this little washer on it and try to get it back in the glasses. And like an hour later, I'd still be trying to get it in the glasses. And so it was funny because the, uh, so I decided that, hey, I needed to put a tab on the washer. So I actually put a tab on the, this double, double hole washer. So I was able to hold the tab and then drop the screw in and get it back into the glasses. Well, one day I was dropping that screw into the washer and I went, wait a minute. If I can put a tab on this washer, why can't I put a tab on the end of the screw? And it was just one of those aha moments. And my poor mother, because I was so focused on the charms that when I found in the screw, I'm like, uh-uh, this will be so much easier to get to the marketplace because there's nothing like it on the market. And it saves you so much time fixing your glasses. That's a great story. And I'd like to kind of recap for our listeners a couple of things that actually aligns with what some of the other guests on our show have also brought forth. I like to use the example of Roger Brown. He's a quite the serial inventor. And one of the things he says is he's found his inventions start out as a dog and turn into a cat. By yeah, that, he means true. the original idea and original concept often evolves into something that can be quite different than what was originally considered. So I think in your case, that's a, a clear illustration of that happening, starting out with the, what amounts to a charm and then saying, wait a second. And I've had this very same problem you just described, that little tiny screw falling out and you have maybe expensive glasses or ones you at least like, sunglasses, and then you're trying to put that little tiny thing back in there. And for me, what ends up happening is usually a new pair of sunglasses because it's so hard to do. Yeah. And I think it's actually true, not only in, in the invention world, but I think it's in the business world too. If you're starting a new business, your business might start out with your ideas for your business to be one way. And then as it evolves, your business might take another turn. And I don't think people should be afraid of that. I think that that's how you grow a business as you take di different turns and avenues along the way. You might not, it might, might not be what your first concept was of your business, but if you let it grow and let it take its course, a lot, a lot of times you'll have a much more successful business. So sort of to reiterate, if you let it sort of find its own way and have a degree of patience instead of having perhaps what you think of as a rigid view, like, oh, this is it. I just want to make this happen. Would you say that's, you know, pretty accurate then? I think that's a perfect way to say it. So the next question really is, so now you have this solution to a problem so many people have and the snap it screw. And as I understand it breaks off when you're finished dropping it in the little, the little tail or the extension on it. You what? actually, you actually take it, you drop it in and then you screw it down because the, the threaded portion is on the top part, portion of the tab. So you actually screw the screw in and then the tab breaks off. Makes perfect sense. So Nancy, then what was your next step? I mean, in other words, to take this idea, this concept, once presumably you had a prototype, what was your next or your first step in terms of 
creating something that is commercial, you know, commercializing or getting into the marketplace? Well, the most interesting thing is that I didn't know what I was doing. And I guess that's what I like to share with people because a lot of people are so afraid to get started because they don't know where to start. And that fear that they have inside of them actually stops them from, from moving forward. I always say you've got to overcome your fear before you start. So Google was my best friend because I had no clue what I was doing. So I Googled every step of the way and I did it all on my own. I didn't have any investors or any partners. So the first thing I did was I Googled, okay, I have an idea. What do I do next? So the next thing was to get it on paper. So I hired a mechanical designer to draw the concept of my screw on paper. And I said to him, you know, this is what I'm trying to do. Do you think this will work? And he's like, yes. So he actually designed the screw for me. And I, at that point in time, I said, okay, well, now I have the drawing. Now I need a prototype. How am I going to get a prototype of this idea? And so I started with Googling screws, small screws. And then I Googled small eyeglass screws. And I took, then I found a company. I was at the time living in Saratoga, New York. I found a company out of Rochester that was strictly an optical screw company that had been, it was the fourth generation of the business. And they did all the screws for Boston Mall, which was out of Rochester, you know, a long time ago. So I called them up on the phone and, you know, I introduced myself and, you know, it was a small family business and he got right on the phone with me and I should look at. I have this new idea for an optical screw and I have it on a drawing. Would you meet with me? And he said, sure. And that's how it started. He was able to actually make the screen for me. When he first saw it, he goes, oh my God. He goes, I can't believe this. He goes, I can't believe no one's ever thought of this. It's so simple. And I said, yeah, but everybody was thinking about ways to hold this screw and not help you design a new one. Such a good point. In other words, it, it seems like inventions always start from looking at a problem in a little different way than everyone else is looking at it. There's a sort of the um, prototypical example where they say that a, a big uh, 18-wheeler truck is a little too tall for the overpass and crunches into the concrete and everyone's standing around trying to figure out how to get it free. And everyone's talking about, you know, knocking the concrete out of the way. And a six-year-old says, why don't you just let some of the air out of the tires? A little different way to look at it. It's so funny you say that because that's how I felt like my idea was. You know, it was so simple, but yet nobody ever looked at it that way. And when we did our patents and we did our searches, I, I mean, I think that's one of the biggest kicks I get out of my invention is that all the people in the world, because I have patents all over the world, Nobody ever thought to do this. I was the first person on earth, at least to put it down on paper and, and try to commercialize it. I'm not saying that nobody ever thought of it before me, but they never did anything. They did. Yeah, it's truly ingenious. Then were you able to get sort of large volumes, et cetera, from that same manufacturer in Rochester then? Or did you have to go overseas at some point to get your cost to a certain level? Yeah, I'm overseas uh, in China. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to keep it in the United States. I would have loved to, and I would have loved to stay working with the company that did my prototype. 
that wasn't feasible. I just, the cost of the um, screw was about 10 times more over here than it is in China. And I want to highlight for a moment, that's a really good point that I think a lot of inventors don't understand because when I had my thin wallets made, I certainly investigated about the United States, but it wasn't even close. I mean, there was no way I would have gotten close to some kind of consumer price point of a $25 wallet because my cost to manufacture over here at best would be 12 or $14 packaged and that's not going to make it. And similarly, you discovered the same thing, but the bigger point for our listeners here is you have to be open-minded, right? And so if you need to go, you need to do what's best for your business, as they say on Shark Tank sometimes. So if you need to go overseas to get your cost points where they need to be, if you want to run a profitable, successful business, then that's what you need to do. Would you agree that makes sense? Oh, I, I would agree. And I've watched some of the Shark Tank episodes where, you know, they were so vested in doing it in the United States that they, their idea never went anywhere. Because you're right, you have to do what, I mean, yes, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think I would meet an inventor who didn't want to make their product in the United States. We live here. We love our country. You know, we want to support the people here and, and invest in, in the, you know, business community in jobs. But if it prices you out of the market, then you have to adjust your thinking process. And, you know, for example... When I first started, I'm going to get off the topic a little bit, but it's kind of the same thing. When I started the pickleball clothing line, I originally went to China. And the quality of the clothes in China were, was not good that I was getting for my business. And I'm like, okay, now I have to pivot. Where am I going to go? I did some research to find out where was the closest place to home that I could manufacture these clothes and get a good quality. And that was in Guatemala. Now, yes, I've had challenges, but I also am helping the people of Guatemala. And so it's not a lost cause that I'm not naked in the U.S. because I am still putting food on people's plates by employing them in Guatemala. Which is, which is phenomenal if you think about it. Uh, we do live in a worldwide community and also, as someone who likewise had shipped overseas and knows about the two weeks on water anyways from Hong Kong to Long Beach, et cetera, just being on the North American continent, in the case of Guatemala, is going to shorten that time span of getting product from the manufacturer to you significantly, I would say. And it's cheaper. And it's, uh, I can drive to Orlando, which is about an hour drive for me, and I can be in Guatemala two and a half hours later. Well, my next question is, what would you say is one of your biggest challenges or setbacks that you've run into? And then what did you learn from it? This is an interesting question for me because there have been lots of them. Biggest challenge that, well, there's two of them. One is I've been knocked off a million times and had a lot of lawsuits. And the other one is people think that the invention is the hard part. People have to understand that the invention is the easy part. It's taking that invention and commercializing it. And there, there's only 1% of the inventions in this country that ever make it to the commercialization process. And it's not because they have bad inventions. It's because of the uh, patience and that tenacity. You have to get it there. So challenges that I've had, well, obviously getting it to the market 
via um, the retail avenue. I was blessed in the optical world in the very beginning to find a distributor uh, who loved my screw and paid me some money up front to be the exclusive distributor of it to the optical world. But they had a target audience already. They had lots of customers. And so I was manufacturing the screw for this company and making my money that way. And they were taking the screw and selling it to the optical world. So as I was bringing in revenue, I was able to focus on the retail side of it. But the retail side of it is a nightmare. I mean, it is, it is one of the hardest things that I've ever done in my life. And I've done some pretty hard things in my life. And it's not, it's because of the avenue which we have to go through to get into retail. And it's, these buyers have relationships with their vendors already. And, you know, there's a million reasons why they say no. And, you know, I have a funny story about Walmart. You know, Walmart had this big, big competition called Get on the Shelf. And there were 5,000 videos that you had, we had to make a video and it was e-commerce and it was a social media driven contest. And at the time when I did it, I didn't know anything about social media. I'm not from that generation. So I had to generate votes for my video. And the only people who won were the top three contestants out of 5,000 videos. Now, I'm thinking to myself, okay, how am I going to do this? I called my son and he laughed at me. You know, he's like, oh, mom, come on. How are you going to do that? You don't have any friends on Facebook or Instagram or any of that stuff. And I said, well, I'll figure it out a way. And so what I did is I actually had a costume made of the snapping. And I flew to New York City with business cards and handing them out to people, telling them to vote for me. And if they voted for me, I would give them a couple of screws. And I ended up getting on Good Morning America and the Today Show doing it. And I have signs of Lester Holt um, holding up my vote for a snap it screw. I'd get on the shelf with the, where they had to vote and stuff. And I ended up being one of the winners. And I thought to myself, wow, now I get on the shelves at Walmart. Well, guess what? It was get on the shelves of their e-commerce site. It wasn't at their store. So talk about deflated, thinking I spent all this money on marketing. I'm going to get in the stores. Well, so I get the phone call that I was one of the winners. And then I get the phone call that it's the e-commerce site, not the store. And I'm like, thinking, oh, wow, I was devastated. But, about, but I didn't let it stop me. About three weeks later, I got a phone call from Walmart and they said uh, they invited the three top winners to their annual shareholders meeting in Bentonville and they wanted us to speak to their employees on a Saturday I guess Walmart for on Saturdays one Saturday a month you have if you're a salaried employee you have to call into this meeting so they asked us to speak and lo and behold the CEO of uh, Walmart was there and introduced us. And so we gave a little talk to the employees. And afterwards, I um, saw the CEO of Walmart in the corner. And I'm like thinking, okay, I'm going up to him and I'm going to figure out how I can get my product off the shelves, okay? So I walked right up to him. And I said, Mr. Simon, 
I said, you know, my name's Nancy Tedeschi. I know you know my product. And he goes, I love your product. And I said, you do? And he said, yeah. And I says, okay, you love my product. How can I get it on the shelves at Walmart? And he said to me, you're not on the shelves at Walmart? And I go, no. I said, I've been to Bentonville twice. I've met with the buyer there twice. They say they love it, but they never get back to me. They never answer my emails. He goes, don't you worry, Nancy. He goes, I will. He goes, you email me when you get home and I will email you back. I promise. So that Saturday when I got home, I emailed him. And he emailed me back within an hour and he said, Nancy, I have copied my senior most merchandising guy and he will be in touch with you. Well, the next morning I had an email from him and he says, Nancy, oh, and the last thing Bill Simon said when he signed out, he goes, I love your product, Nancy. And then the next day I got an email from the senior merchandising guy and he said to me, Somebody from the optical division will be in touch with you and on Monday. And on Monday, I got a call from the buyer that had turned me down. Wow. And I got, a, and I got an order for 150,000 repair kits. Wow. Such a great story. I, I want to take a couple of minutes and sort of break down because I, the way I see it, there's at least four parts to what you just described that I think is extremely helpful to the inventors listening to this podcast. And one of them is that it's not easy. And actually sort of part one is invention is the easy part. It's, you know, commercialization that's a hard part. And you mentioned that something like 1% of inventors ever get their product commercialized. And I, I agree, it's a pretty small percentage for all the reasons we just described. So invention's easy part was one statement. The commercialization's a hard part. And then we all have to deal with knockoffs. It's a good product. I call it whack-a-mole because with my product, the Wonder Wallet, the whack-a-moles begin popping up everywhere, selling them for $3. And there's only so much, you know, you can do your, you know, your um, threat and um, lawsuits, et cetera. But some of the guys, it's not going to do much because they'll just pop up somewhere else. Some of it's effective. But so those are three key challenges. But you also described sort of very clearly the concept of the retail challenge of getting onto retail shelves that I think the average inventor has no idea how daunting it is because shelf space is considered valuable down to the square inch and they have slotting fees and other fun things. And we are usually single product vendors, as they call it, right? Or SKUs, and, and they often don't like that. So all of those things are the challenges that an inventor has in basically inventoring their product and getting it onto store shelves. Would you agree that's a pretty accurate description of it? Yes, it is. That's exactly right. I want to ask you a question slightly different direction. I mean, because your primary focus, at least initially, was on venturing your product and getting it out there that way. But I understand that you've also licensed your invention as well. How did you find the company or licensee and or did they contact you? Well, it's uh, another thing about licensing your invention. I remember I was at a trade show and Stephen Tee, who's a pretty successful business uh, idea guy, and he has a company that helps people license their products. I had met him before I started this venture into the retail market, and 
I'll never forget it. I was in Minnesota at a trade show and I had a little tiny table set up and he loved my product. And he says to me, so who are you going to get to license this? And I looked at him and I said, I'm not going to license this. I'm going to bring it to retail myself. And he looked at me and he goes, you're crazy. And at the time I'm like thinking, why does he think I'm crazy? Now I know why he thinks I'm crazy. So yes, I have, I was lucky because when I started Snapit, I uh, deliberately targeted the optical market first. Why I did that, it was innate in me. I just don't know why that's the avenue I went, but that's the avenue I went. And the company that I had had hired as a distributor was interested in, in my product. So I was able, because they had a, they had a two-year distribution agreement with me, by the end of the two years, they wanted to be the that they wanted to be the uh, person who licensed it. So I licensed the optical portion of my business to them. And I, so I, they had already had a relationship with me. I gave them where I was making the screws and they kind of took over that in the United States. So I then, after I got that licensing agreement, that's when I started focusing on retail fully and also on other parts of the world. So my goal was to, you know, I got a very lucrative licensing deal with this company, but I had to build the company first to, to, to be able to get that offer from them. So I've now set up an office in London and I'm trying to do the same thing. I'm actually targeting the optical industry over there. And once I get that done, then I'll find a licensing there. And then I'll go to Japan and the other places I have patents, which are about 14 other countries. Wow, that's that's an amazing story again, and lots of interesting, valuable content in there as well. And and as I understand it, you actually kind of segmented in that you chose to license only an optical and then allowing yourself to continue to sell yourself in other segments. Is that right? That's correct. So that's pretty ingenious. And also you uh had the wisdom and foresight to get patents in multiple countries, which, as I understand, can be a little expensive sometimes. Yeah, and I'd like to share a story about that as well that I think might be helpful to your listeners. You know, when I first started, I didn't really know anything about patents. And so I listened to other people telling me where I should get patents. And one of the stories and one of your questions earlier was what was one of the biggest challenges or setbacks that I had? So I applied for my patent in the European Union. And that includes, I think, either 32 or 36 countries. I'm not sure you apply in one place. And then once you get your patent, it's good in all those places. You just have to pay separate fees. Now, that patent cost me, when all was said and done, over $50,000. Now, what I learned was I didn't need a patent in Europe. And why do I say that? Because they can't make my screen in Europe for what I make it for in China and compete with me. Okay. So if they wanted to make it in Europe, fine, let them, but I'm still going to be the, I'm going to be the less expensive one because I'm commercializing it over in China and I have a patent in China, so they can't do it in China. Now, people always say, well, China, you're not a patent in China. They're not going to uphold it. And that's not true. 
when I first started this journey, my patent agent was clever enough to talk me into getting it in China because I had the mindset of, why am I going to spend my money in China? I'm thinking, you know, they're just going to knock me off anyway. And he said, Nancy, you never know what will happen in China in five years. And boy, was he right, because I've filed two lawsuits in China so far. I've won both of them, and I just filed three more. Now, had I known that piece of knowledge when I started, I would have never spent my money in Europe. So once again, you make several really great points there when it comes to patent strategy, and everyone has a little different approach to it. You know, sometimes you just patent the United States, recognizing that you can be knocked off in other countries, but also thinking about EPC or whatever it's called for Europe is expensive because they're, I think it has to be translated in multiple languages and many other things. So filing that route for the European patent can be, as you discovered, quite expensive, in this case, $50,000. And in the end, from a business perspective, it wasn't worth it to you because just doesn't make sense to manufacture in Europe. The cost is too high, just as it is in America. But also, I think most people don't perceive, just as you described, that having a patent in China has any intrinsic value. But as you described, that really has changed in the last five or six years because China is beginning to enforce their patent laws. So, it, you know, you've had some success in addressing people that are infringing in that way. You can actually make a living doing it. I mean, I kind of laugh about it now because who would ever think that my invention all of a sudden turned into revenue for me from suing businesses in the Chinese Chinese courts? I mean, if you'd have told me that eight years ago, I'd have thought you were nuts. But I now can make a good living because you know what they do? And everybody's afraid of this, but it's not anything to be afraid of. They close the shop and they move down the street and open another one. But you know what? If you have enough people there that are on your side that can find these little shops, you just, you know, you just file a lawsuit and you make money off people. It's crazy. That is amazing. So, so now they're going to start labeling you a patent troll. So anyway. <laughs> a patent troll on my own patent. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's a great story and lots of valuable information there to help as well. So going forward, do you think you would prefer to venture your future inventions or license them? Or what are your thoughts about that? Oh, boy. You know, I always say that this was the snap it screw was one of the worst experiences in my lifetime. Now, had I known what I knew then, what I know now, I would have probably enjoyed the ride a little bit better than I did. It was very stressful. And, you know, a lot of mistakes I made. So I always think back to what Stephen Key said to me at that trade show. Well, you're crazy to bring it to retail yourself. And you know what? I was crazy to bring it to retail myself. So if I ever or when I do come up with something else. Well, there's two, there's two avenues to look at this. I myself personally now don't need the revenue from the retail stream. So I would license it in a heartbeat. You know, some people, if that's going to be their career and that's what their only dream is in life is to capitalize on this one invention that they have and they believe it's really going to work, you know, I'd take a shot at retail. I would also take a shot at getting myself a good consultant 
somebody that's done it before or a mentor, spend your money there instead of spending it in Europe on patents. You know, people who have done it before can help. You know, I'd mentor people. I'm on the board of directors at Stetson University's entrepreneur program. And that's one of my passions now is to help other inventors navigate the system that is so broken and so hard to get through. So, you know, I always say that I did it. If I had to do it over again, I would license it, but I wouldn't license it, license it until I went through the first, you know, the first invention. Because Snap It taught me so much. I have, you know, I have so much knowledge about this industry now that I can share and bring it to other people and help them get there. And I, I did just as big as kick as watching other people do it than I did with myself doing. Well, that's, uh, again, a lot of good information. And especially you bring, I think you've actually brought this point forth a couple of times as we've been talking, and that is that there's really no single path that you have to pursue, right? So if your primary goal is to license, you know, if you actually manufacture maybe even a small, a small run or what have you, and you go out there and you test market it and you find out what people like and what they don't like, that's actually a very valuable process because often the product becomes better because of that and your knowledge of what the buyers goes way up. And then if you then decide to pursue licensing, you're in much better shape because it's not just you saying this is a theoretical product. You say my buyers love it. So, you know, you can, and I did, I had that experience as well because I manufactured in China for eight years and then, you know, went on to QVC with it. And when I did, was able to finally license it, I had all the talking points. I essentially everything that All Star Products put on the box, almost everything was came from me based on the things that I'd learned. So it's not a bad thing to go one way and then pivot and go a different way as well. So um, I'm 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 63 and I've been there and done that when it comes to uh, manufacturing. So at this point, my preference going forward for me, anyways, would be primarily to license, but I don't regret the experience of having done both either. I actually 100% agree with you. I would, I would never trade that experience. You know, they say the lower you go, the higher you go. You know, and that's how I feel about the snap it screw. I mean, I always, it's a big joke with my family, my friends, because I always say, I hate that dang screw. And everybody laughs. I said, yeah, I hate it in the sense that it was, you know, really that the, but I, I, it's taught me so much about invent the innovation world, and it's taught me how to help other people do what I've done. You know, so I wouldn't trade it for all but P in China. The lessons that I got for it, would I go that route again? Not in a heartbeat. Yeah, such good points. So one question I would then have is: Is there one particular tip or strategy that you've learned that has been key to your success as an inventor? You know, a lot of times when you're trying to reach out to the commercialization of your product, you reach out to other people to help, you know, like salespeople, you know, that people that have bring these products into, you know, buyers and you give them a commission or whatever. You know, I did that a couple of times where I hired these companies that said that they, um, you know, they had all these relationships with buyers and I would give them 10% of the gross sales and that's what the fee would be to do it. And what I learned was after a couple of times, you know, I was just another trick in their bag. They had, you know, 
50 products in there they were showing. And I was just one of them. And hopefully they would hit a, you know, home run with one of the ones in their bags. And maybe it wasn't why I did learn was don't lose control because you can't trust other people to bring your product to the market. You have to, you know, unless you do some kind of a contract with them where it's based on uh, results. And a lot of people will get into these contracts that, you know, say, oh, we'll take your product to the market, you know, pay us this or whatever. But yeah, you can't give control of something that important to somebody that doesn't really care about, they care about the money. They're not caring about your business. So you stay in control, you navigate through the system. And if you want to hire somebody to, to help you, fine, but make them accountable to you. Make them, you know, report back to you. Okay. You know, if you don't do this amount of uh, sales this month, then your commission is 5%, not 10%. There, there's so many avenues that you can, that you can set up these things just you know, like I said, the biggest one that I think is staying in control of the outcome of what your product is doing. So that's a great tip, ultimately maintaining control of the outcome and also watching how well people deliver on what they say they're going to do. I think that was a point that Bobby Edwards with the Squatty Potty had made as well. He said, no one else is going to do it for you when it comes down to it. It needs to be your voyage, your tour, and you need to be in control. Sure, you'll work with others to help you, but you do need to make them accountable, which was your point as well. Yeah, it's true. That I mean, that was a big, big lesson for me. Paid, I paid somebody money to help me, you know, bring it to the market. They never did anything. I threatened to sue them and I got my money back. And, you know, it was one of the sharks, and I'm not going to tell you which one. And it was like, so many lessons I learned about trust because I'm a trusting person. I want to help everybody. You know, that's just who I am. And, I, you know, I always want everybody else to be that way. And I'm learning that that's not what I can count on with other people. So just be careful with, you know, I always say if, if they ask for money, run. I mean, not that we're not that we're not entitled to make money helping inventors, but you know, base it on the outcome of the help, not on anything that's going to happen, only on what is happening or what has happened. Really is an excellent point and good point. You know, be, be cautious of those helpers that want to be paid uh, without any guarantee of any kind of outcome that you can hang your hat on, so to speak. And uh, that happens a lot, I would say. A real lot. <laughs> So kind of as we close here, I, I'd like to ask, are there any parting words you'll like to, you'd like to leave us with? Well, you know, believe in yourself, believe in your product, you know, work hard. Don't take no for an answer. There's other ways to do it in the conventional way. Go through the back door if the front door is not open. And that, that example is Walmart. I couldn't get through the front door. Go get your product in front of the board of directors at these companies. You know, if you're having a dead end street with buyers, figure out another way. Go to trade shows, walk the floor. You don't have to have a booth there. Go pick up business cards, make connections. That's how you're going to get your product out there. It's not going to be by walking through the front door of these stores. It's not going to happen. I mean, very rarely is it going to happen. Those are another good point. And, and it's 
something that George Burkhart makes in talking about the back door, so to speak, or pull through marketing. He would find a, a product rep uh, at the company that, you know, sells it regularly and, and they would know the product rep name in this case at Bosch. So that's kind of a backdoor way to get to someone like you were just describing and your, your backdoor way of getting into Walmart by the CEOs right there. You're not going to miss that opportunity. And had you not, you probably wouldn't have ever gotten it in Walmart other than online. That's correct. You know, it's a, it, it is a, you know, you're, you're, you're innovative enough to innovate a product. You're also innovative enough to figure out ways around the system because the system is broken. There's no doubt about it. Little guys like us who invent one or two products in our lifetime, it's a nightmare to, you know, travel the road to get to success. So there are other ways around the system. And, and I encourage other people to think outside the box and don't think, you know, somebody says, oh, you got to go through this fire. Don't take that as the answer. Because if you get a no from that buyer, there's other avenues. Just don't give up because that's what they tell you. Yeah, it makes it makes so much sense that, that put another way, be just as creative when you're with your approaches to marketing as you are with inventing. One way to think of it from my perspective anyways. And well, yeah, I dressed up as a screw and walked around New York City. Super. Yeah, I mean, it's like, come on, that's out of the box thinking. I was one day thinking, okay, how can I do this? I Googled how to find somebody to make me a costume. The lady was in Chicago. I sent her a picture of my screw. And I mean, if you go on my Facebook page at Nancy Tedeschi, you'll, you'll see that. I mean, if you look at the photos, you'll see it. And that snap, it's true. It's pretty funny. That's hilarious. That's right up there with Richard Branson's grandstand when he dressed up in some kind of Superman looking outfit when he was doing something for um, one of his companies in the mobile business. And he ended up standing on top of this mobile cell phone as it's being lowered with a crane and he looks like some kind of Superman. And that got all kinds of media at a time when Richard <laughs> Branson was not as well known as he is now. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's, that's a good example. I mean, see what he did. Look what he's done with his companies, you know. It's an outside of the box thinking way and don't believe what people tell you is is the right way to go because a lot of times the right way to go is the wrong way to go. So my final question, and how can our listeners reach you if they have other questions? Well, um, they can even reach to me, reach out to me on Facebook at Snap It Screw or um, my email address is snapitscrew at gmail.com. And I'm on Instagram and I'm on LinkedIn as well. And, you know, anybody who has any questions, you know, reach out to me on mine at my email address because I help a lot of inventors. I mean, I probably spend 25% of my time giving back to inventors. And can you tell us the, the email address then that for that? Yeah, it's, yes, it's snapitscrew at gmail.com. Yep, snapitscrew at gmail.com. Got it. And my website is snapitscrew.com. If you want to see what my product looks like, there's some information about me and the awards I've won and other things like that. That's great. And then the, the snapitscrew.com, there's no dash or anything in there. It's just all... all it's all one word. Yep. Right. Snapitscrew. Yep. That's super. Well, Nancy, thanks so much for taking the time today and sharing your insights, your stories and 
just really phenomenal information with our listeners. And I, I know will be extremely valuable. Just appreciate you being on the show today. And hopefully we'll uh, get with you in six months or a year and kind of catch up and see what's going on with the pickleball on your next new adventure. Oh, yeah, that, that's that's going to be big. I'm actually working with a guy who I hired as a consultant who drew his polling line from zero to $357 million in three years. And yesterday he told me that he's been showing my product to people high in the industry and every one of them said I have a home run. So I'm excited. So an interesting future story coming. So thanks again for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. You have a good day now. Hi, Italian Nation. Summer is here and things are heating up, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. And for me, my coaching schedule is beginning to heat up as well. But I always want to make coaching available to my podcast listeners whenever I can. I now have three different coaching options available to help you with almost any topic you need assistance with. So option number one is what I call custom coaching. It's three hours of one-on-one coaching with you, and you can schedule those three hours over whatever time period works for you. This is the most popular coaching program that I do, and it can fit a variety of needs. Next up is premium coaching. Now that's six hours of one-on-one coaching and typically over about a two-month period. It's very proactive, It's interactive and engaging, and you'll have lots of homework assignments, but we can help you achieve a variety of key goals that you may be working toward. So premium coaching can be very helpful for that. And last but not least, I just created this third program because people are asking for it. It's what I call VIP coaching. This is 12 hours of one-on-one coaching over approximately a four-month period. Much like premium coaching, it's proactive, interactive, and engaging, but I'd add to that it's comprehensive coverage in that we can do multiple key topics that you need assistance with, I would say as many as three. So if you would like to explore possibilities of getting some assistance in your invention journey with coaching with me, just send me an email, alan at alanbeckley.com. Again, that's A-L-A-N, last name B-E-C-K-L-E-Y, Allen at allenbeckley.com. And in the subject line, please put coaching options. I'll reach out to you, we'll schedule a short meeting and see what would be the best option for you. Again, just reach out to Allen at allenbeckley.com. And in the subject line, put coaching options. I look forward to hearing from you and seeing how we can help you get more traction faster. Thanks so much for tuning in to Inventors Helping Inventors. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it. Make sure to subscribe in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a single episode. Talk to you soon.